Hi, and welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, Total Rewind Edition. It's Dustin, here with Christian. How you doing, man? I'm good, dude. How are you? Very excited for this episode. We're kind of uh, switching things up this week. We're going in a totally different genre, totally different Old school. time period. <laughs> Should be fun. Absolutely. So for anyone that didn't listen to last week's podcast, Total Rewind, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, be sure to go back and check out that episode. If you didn't even get a chance to watch the movie, watch the movie as well. And I did want to say that we got some pretty decent feedback from people um, from at Daniel Hammersmith uh, or at D Hammersmith. She actually said, great episode. And we appreciate you listening, Danielle. Miss you. Hope we can uh, hang out sometime soon. And Connor at Teacup Adventures or at My Derailed Brain actually chimed in on he texted me this week. He didn't post it in social media. And he said on Friday, he's like finishing up making dinner for the kids and then I'll call you. I have the day off, so I plan on listening to your podcast tomorrow, right? That's what he said. Mm -hmm. And the next thing that he texted me was, I had a brown butterfly land on me three times today. So (laughs) whatever that's worth. Cool. Uh, Does that relate to the podcast directly? I think that's just an example of how Connor's brain works and uh, i'll have to give him a call and get some solid feedback on what he thought of that episode <laughs> but connor if you're listening right now when you send me feedback for this episode actually send me feedback about this episode <laughs> oh man um so, so cool yeah no the, there's been a lot of activity on social media um a couple of shares everything so we just wanted to say thank you to everybody we really appreciate the love on social media and we're excited for this new episode so Christian, I'm going to throw it over to you if you want to go ahead and introduce the movie we're going to do on Total Rewind this week. Awesome. This week, we are going to be talking about a film classic, The Big Sleep from 1946, starring Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart. Is he if is he one of the best leading men of all time? I believe on the AFI list, he is considered the number one actor of all time. That's pretty crazy. I mean, and you watch the movie and you see it. This guy just has such a charisma and you're just fascinated to watch him do everything on screen. And it's amazing. And, and honestly, every movie that he's in has that he has that same kind of magnetic draw. And it's it's pretty cool. Well, OK, so The Big Sleep. Uh, what exactly is this movie about? And I do know I'm just asking rhetorically. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good point, because this movie uh, has a reputation for being very confusing. Right. It is based off of the Raymond Chandler novel, The Big Sleep, written in 1939, and it follows the adventures of private investigator Philip Marlowe as he is attempting to uncover kind of two two different cases simultaneously. One is a missing persons case, and the other is a uh, story focusing on blackmail. So totally this 1940s detective um, right up that that alley in terms of genre well it like bringing up genre i mean we have to acknowledge this movie's kind of place in the genre of film noir well and that's something that like has really been debated by film scholars and filmmakers a lot of people don't consider this a true noir and a lot of people even go on further to say that director howard hawks has never made a true noir and first of all we need to take a moment to give a shout out to howard hawks who is a filmmaker from, believe it or not, Goshen, Indiana. No way. 
Yep, the small town next to ours where we grew up. Uh, yeah, that's where he was uh, born and raised. I have been bowling in Goshen. I know, pretty crazy, right? <laughs> um, Hawks has made a lot of great influential films from the 40s. You know, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, To Have and Have Not, His Girl Friday, obviously The Big Sleep. These are some major uh, movies that a lot of people uh, know well and as, as part of film history. Um but the the noir issue is kind of debated, and I personally believe that he has made that this is a noir. I also think that to have and have not is, and you know when you look at the noir kind of tropes and and you go down that checklist, it is you know when we look at the concept of what makes a good film noir. The first thing is 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 the main character, right? This private investigator character, right. who this is really shaped by detective literature coming out in the late 1800s, right? Where the world was urbanizing and people felt that they couldn't trust these police forces um, made up of hundreds and hundreds of people compared to, you know, what they knew in history beforehand of, of these small town sheriffs. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people didn't think they could trust the police to solve their problems like today. So that's why the the concept of the private investigator really developed in literature. Right. He was someone who is smarter, better, more courageous than everybody else. But because he wasn't of the police, he could be trusted to do the right thing for the common man. And that's what Marlowe is, right? In the beginning of the movie, he says, hey, you know, I used to work, work, you know, as part of the establishment. Not anymore. I'm doing my own thing. Two, another big trope of the film noir genre. I mean, think about when these movies were coming out kind of during this period of of um, the world had just, you know, was at war. You couldn't trust anybody. On top of that, women had left, you know, kind of the the domain of the home that they had been in for for hundreds of years and had taken jobs, you know, working in factories and were, you know, so from the male psyche, right, they saw women as as untrustworthy, as dishonest, as they were a threat to men. And that's what these femme fatale characters are. And when you look at this movie, Carmen, Vivian, Agnes, the main three, even the woman working in the bookstore, right? All the female characters in the film are deceptive. You can't trust them. They all try and deceive Marlowe. They lie and have these hidden agendas, which is very much in line with a film noir. And then, of course, you know, there's some really cool little film noir tropes that we'll talk about later, which, while this isn't necessarily shot as a film noir traditionally, from the content perspective, largely shaped by Chandler's novel, I think that it is. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, ultimately... It feels like the story itself draws straight from the kind of, you know, classical film noir period, which is, you know, there's a murder mystery, private detective, femme fatale, like all of that stuff. And it is shot like the classical film noirs from that era. You know, film noir, the genre really grew in like the like you said, the writing really grew in the late 30s, but the films grew in the 40s and 50s. You know, low-key, black and white, um, they kind of had that German expressionist cinematography. And mm-hmm. that that element of it, that type of cinematography, I think is one thing that's actually missing here. If you were to watch The Big Sleep, it feels a lot like other films of that period, not necessarily of the film noir genre. Where when you watch other ones, they have, you know, those silhouettes, there's a lot of moving shadows, there's a lot of depth and they do have some kind of like fog and a little bit of rain in the big sleep, but not to the the degree that you see in some other film noirs. Absolutely. 
And just going back to and, and the other thing that, as we mentioned briefly, this movie is really confusing and <laughs> really confusing. Right. And Howard Hawks has a great line where he talked about making the movie where he says, while making the big sleep, I found out for the first time that you don't have to be too logical. You just have to make gr- good scenes. And that's exactly what the movie is. It's great scenes. It's really hard to figure out what's going on. And I mean, we've kind of talked about some of the reasons why, right? Part I mean, of that something is, that like, stands out to me is, you know, the incoherence of the story. You can kind of follow it all the way through and you're like, okay, I kind of get it. But really the movie revels in like hanging out with this detective, you know, going along on his, you know, case. And, you know, it's got wisecracks and, and that real kind of like hard detective talk. And, and there's this sexual chemistry and all these other things at play that make the story and the catalyst for why he's even doing this feel much more like background than the main vehicle of the the movie. Yeah. And I think there's kind of two reasons why. The first is if you start deciding you want to watch the movie, you'll find out that it was really complicated in terms of production. It was originally shot and cut. Uh, Warner Brothers went back and wanted to recut the movie and reshoot some scenes to try and bolster the uh, the appeal of Lauren Bacall, increase the sexual tension, make her, you know, a bigger superstar because she was already a budding starlet at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, in doing so, they cut out a few scenes, but the major one is a scene which is actually written for the audience where Marlowe comes in and he meets with the chief of police and, and the district attorney. And essentially he lays out the facts of the case and what's happened and where it's going. And it's really a scene for the audience to get them back on board. Right. Two, um, there, the screenwriters tried to faithfully adapt the book from Chandler's book, The Big Sleep. And they even themselves were confused with components of the story. And there's this great <laughs> There's yeah, this it's, great little, it's seriously crazy. I thought about it as I was watching it. Right. And and they ended up calling Raymond Chandler, the author of the book, and they said, OK, who killed this person? And his answer pretty much was, well, it doesn't really matter. And they took that same perspective into the screenplay. So there's things that not even the authors seem to have the answer to. And finally, and I think this bolsters the point that this is a film noir. The movie is intentionally, I think, created to be confusing. And I think Hawks wanted it to be. Philip Marlowe, you know, Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart's character is in every single scene. And we follow him. We see only what he knows. We learn only what he knows about the case. The difference is Marlowe is supposed to be smarter and more courageous than, you know, us regular mortal movie watchers are. And so we're watching the movie and confused, but as he's going along, he's seen all these things that no one else in the story and outside of the story is smart enough to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's yeah. the only guy who can solve the case. And I think when you intentionally take that perspective and apply it to the film, you want it to be confusing so that the audience has more faith and trust in our hero. That's actually fascinating from a story standpoint, because... Yeah, I mean, if you make the mystery too easy, then you're kind of like, why could you know, why did it have to be him? Right. That's and just I guess opinion. I didn't even I didn't even think of that. And I did find the story to be confusing because, like you said, there's almost like, you know, two separate cases trying to be solved and they kind of converge at the end and all this different stuff. But 
yeah, you're you're kind of left like, huh, I'm not even 100% sure what's going on. And you do kind of feel that way where you're kind of like, you know what? If he says this is where they're supposed to go, he probably knows more than I do. <laughs> exactly, right? So, yeah, that makes total sense. And it's weird because, you know, something I think you and I talked about it in pre-production where I was like, you know, certain movies, it's like in Star Wars, they just have an opening crawl that just lays it all out. And they're like, here's what's going to happen. And, you know, how it ends, you got to watch. And in this, sure, they set up the the actual, like, two different cases, but by the time it gets going, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so, so. But it was fun to watch. Um, I really enjoyed it. Obviously, there, we're going to get to this towards the end of the podcast, but I've, you know, kind of been a big fan of the film noir genre, and this is actually one of the ones I haven't seen, so I really enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend, I'm speaking to our listeners now, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I recommend you go check it out. I think, you know, you can rent it on like Vudu or Apple um, for like $3 or something. It's not that yeah. not that bad. And the original book's worth a read, too. I mean, it's Raymond Chandler. It's great. It's an easy read. And you get to spend some time in, in the head of this awesome 1940s dude that we all wish we could be. Pretty sweet. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our lists on this movie. So to kick off Total Rewind... The big sleep, we're going to do top three quotes from the movie. So do you want to go first? No, uh, sure. I'll start out. All right. So there's a scene later in the movie where Marlo meets one of the femme fatales, Carmen. And as every time she sees Marlo, she starts flirting with him, um, as she's prone to do. And she says, Mm -hmm. you're cute. And the line he responds with, I love, is he says, I'm getting cuter every minute. And just the way, you know, the way Bogart delivers his lines, you're just like, God, that is so witty and just on point and and just oozing with charisma. And I love it. Nice. Um, After me in the very first scene of the movie is my second favorite line. When he meets General Sternwood, who is actually Carmen's father, Sternwood offers Marlowe a brandy and he asks, how do you take your brandy, sir? To which Marlowe answers, like a total badass, he says, in a glass. And I was like, that's just exactly what you would expect this hard-boiled 1940s detective to say. Yeah, for real. Like, it's just that sarcastic comment, like, you know, just however you give it to me is good. Yeah, like booze is booze. And then my very favorite one is... After Marlowe goes over to Brody's apartment and he runs into Agnes and Vivian and he kind of foils this whole uh, part of the blackmail plot going on in the story. Everyone starts pulling out guns and there's a standoff and he says, my, 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 such a lot of guns around town and so few brains. Um, And I just think that's a great line. And, and, you know, just showing how cool this dude is under pressure and how, um, you know, not even guns bother him. Yeah, no, I I love that quote. And that's a that's a great scene. I laughed. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, right? it's, you know, he's a deadpan delivery. It's fun. How about you? What were your num- three? Number three on my list was actually, how do you like your brandy, sir, in a glass? And, you know, to me, that's just if some if I was, you know, someone came over to my house and I was pouring brandy or whatever. And someone said that I would just love that quote. <laughs> and it, it comes off even better. You know, he's a private detective. And in a lot of ways, it's weird because he does this a couple times. He answers with sarcasm, but as a detective, he's often like, get to the point. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't want to talk about all the fancy, like, just let's get to it. Yeah. And I thought that was very much in character for Marlo. Um, number two on my list is a little conversation between Vivian and Marlo. 
And it goes, she says, you've forgotten one thing, me. And he says, what's wrong with you? And like pulls her in closer. And she looks mm-hmm. at him and says, nothing you can't fix. And <laughs> I really liked that exchange for the, uh, you know, added little sexual tension, which is amped up a little bit because I believe at the time, I don't know if they had an affair or exactly what happened, but they ended up getting married and audiences loved them together. So I bet that just played fantastic in the theater. Well, I mean, and they have such a great chemistry. Um, yeah. And you're right. I just watch it. And it's it's just, you know, it, it's getting to that point of that kind of sexual romantic tension that they that Warner Brothers wanted to add in with the recut of the film. Yeah, it worked. And my number one is I don't know why this made me laugh so much, but there's an exchange between him and Vivian where she says, tell you what, what is it you're trying to find out? And he says, Marlo says, you know, it's a funny thing. You're trying to find out what your father hired me to find out. And I'm trying to find out why you want to find out. <laughs> and I was like, that's a perfect detective line where he's like, I am fully aware of what's happening here. You think you're being coy and smart and undercover, but really I know you have an angle and I'm on to you and I'm trying to work that out too. While also making that line really funny. It reminds me of almost that line from friends, the famous line where, they're like, they don't know we know they know we know. <laughs> you know, also, yeah, it plays well, given the fact that this story and the plot is very convoluted, right? Yeah, that's how it feels watching it. <laughs> yeah, those no, are I, my quotes. I, I actually so, thought there were quite a, quite a few good one-liners, a couple quips, some good sarcasm in there, mostly from Marlowe. But, you know, at the end, I could see people walking out of the theater in the 40s uh, quoting that movie. I mean, yeah, right? Like, I would want to talk like that if I was a dude in the 40s. Like, it's awesome. That's pretty dope. All right, um, well. Okay. So well, what were what were your uh, favorite shots in the movie? I'll go ahead and take this one. Uh, number three was actually a point of view shot from inside a car of the shooter running away. And mm. the reason why I like this shot is because a lot of it's filmed very traditionally, you know, kind of establishing. It moves in. It has coverage. And this added, uh, I thought, the needed energy to this scene just through camera movement, even though they're basically using the car as like a, <laughs> a dolly. Yeah. Uh, it added the right energy to that scene to kind of amp it up a little bit so it felt like things were, were moving faster. Yeah, no, that's a good shot. That's a good shot. Uh, number two, one of the shots I really enjoyed was it's at the beginning um, when he pulls up to what's the guy's name? His name is uh... Geiger. Geiger. That was his name. He pulls up to Geiger's house and it's raining, um, which is weird because it's in L.A., right? (laughs) And they I I really appreciated the raining shot because they do it in a way where um, you can tell that even though this might be on like a back lot or a set, the rain is throughout and it looks really good. And I think raining shots, I'm I know you're with me on this. They're very, very hard to do. Oh, yeah, totally. So and if you watch old movies, sometimes rain shots come off as if they're on a soundstage. Yeah. And it looks like, you know, they're just kind of adding rain in for an effect. But that we're like, that's not real rain. And here I thought it it played well. I actually liked the way it looked. And, you know, they use the rain and the fog effects very well. Cool. No, that's a good one. And then number one is the kiss in the car. (laughs) <laughs> okay. And okay. that just reminds me of 
old time Hollywood, obviously that was something that audiences of that time were probably, you know, on the edge of their seat for wanting to see these two leads kiss and they deliver and Humphrey Bogart pulls it off. You know, it's kind of a, a medium shot and he pulls it off as the leading man and it just, you know, it really works. Dude, good shots. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have to start with an honorable mention. The first shot, well, the honorable mention one I got to talk about is when Lauren Bacall walks into the restaurant when she's oh, meeting Marlo. She kind of walks down and there's this cloud of cigarette smoke around her and she sort of passes through it and we track her as she walks through the restaurant, you know, with with columns and, and diners between the camera and her. And she walks right up to Humphrey Bogart. And it's 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 almost this like magical moment. Right. Because, you know, that yeah. finally things are starting to happen between them. And, you know, um, we still can't trust her, but there's this sex appeal about her. And I just think it's a really cool shot. The number three shot for me, though, is in the beginning of the film when he's following up on one of the first leads, which is Geiger, and he's trying to figure out who he is. So he goes to a bookstore across the street from Geiger's business mm -hmm. and he's waiting to see what happens and who Geiger is and where he goes so he can tell him. And we, the shot starts out looking through the shop window. It's a frame within a frame. There's the shop window. There's the rain falling down. There's all the people scurrying about in their umbrellas. Right. Mm -hmm. And a car pulls up and the bookstore owner takes a step into the frame followed by Marlo, and we watch as Geiger comes out of his shop and goes around and gets in the back of the car and the chauffeur drives away. And I just think it's a really cool shot that took probably a lot of coordination. Um, For real. But, it, you know, we're watching this movie inside the movie, and I love the fact that they both move in and they're kind of silhouetted against the window, and, you know, it's got the rain and it just feels so noir. I have a um, question for you. When they're yeah. in that bookstore, they do not show it, but they go to the back room and drink. Did anything happen between them? <laughs> I actually don't know. I, I was always under the assumption that it looks like something's supposed to happen, but I think I, I mean I don't remember the book well enough to to know. You know. Okay, I, I was just curious if you knew because they don't explicitly hint at it, but I mean they also like. <laughs> They also show it, so yeah. the, the lead-up. Yeah. So I was like, I mean, they, they put an emphasis on showing the lead-up, but they don't ever mention it again. And I was like, I don't know what happened back there. But Especially since he kind of walks out and he's like, thanks, see ya. And he just, like, leaves, and it's very kind of blunt, his exit. Um, yeah. So I, get, I, I don't know, and I wonder the same thing every time I watch that scene. Um, so my second favorite shot is after Marlo's on the phone with Vivian and he tells her that he's not going to leave in his office. He's going to wait for her to call him back. He hangs up the phone and he immediately leaves the office. But as he leaves it, he flips off his light or off the light. And so his office is dark and the hall and, you know, and the, uh, the next room is lit up and we see him step through and he's just silhouetted against the, the lit doorway, you know, mm -hmm. the fedora, him, and he closes the door and we see the light shine through the glass door with, uh, you know, the private for a private investigator uh, backwards and lit up against the, uh, you know, shattered against the light. And I just think it looks so cool. And every time I see it, I'm like, that is like what a film noir is supposed to be. Yeah, that's like a classic film noir shot using the shadows, using the layers it, that that works. 
And then my very favorite is when Marlo go, uh, returns to the office and Camino's there and he is um, arguing with Jones. There's this great shot where kind of Marlo sneaks in and we see through the uh, through the Doorway. glass. Yeah, we see through the glass window their silhouettes as they're moving and sitting down and just into, um, you know, out of frame. And the camera kind of pans over and stops and we see Camino's silhouette with his hat through the open door. We see him standing there talking to Jones and it's just really cool. Again, playing with the shadows, playing with the lights, you know, owning the fact that these men are are we can't trust them. They're deceptive. They're villains, but they're rocking their fedoras, and it looks so cool. Yeah, that I, I thought that too when I was watching. I actually considered that on my list of best shots because he even walks away to like get water or coffee or something, and then walks back, and they show it all. So like he walks out of the door frame and then turns yeah. back into a silhouette and then comes back. Yeah, right. And it's 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 just a great use of shadows. It worked really well. And then, like you said, Marlowe's there outside the door, hiding behind something, listening in. And it really gives you the feel of us being there with him and almost like we're we're spying on them, too. Yeah, right. It's kind of a voyeuristic type scene. It's cool. Exactly. That was Yeah, that's perfect. So, all right, our next list is actually going to be top three film noir tropes. Now, we kind of talked about this at the top of the episode, but I wanted to get your opinion on, you know, what really worked for the film noir genre in The Big Sleep? <laughs> Interesting. And I want to know your list because this is not one that we discussed before the show. The first thing is obviously smoking, which is something that point. doesn't happen in movies today and at the time it was totally common and so you know people smoked anywhere and everywhere and all the time and i don't think anyone thought about it as a noir trope in the 40s or the 50s right yeah but it's most <laughs> in modern day you know in in the modern day era it is it's something that has become synonymous with noir and there's some great scenes of vivian and marlo when they're sitting at the table and he lights up her cigarette and you know we see the lighter and there's the opening sequence, which is just them smoking, kind of silhouetted, and and the smoke is kind of blowing across the screen, and it's it's moving the, the you know it's the transition for the opening title sequence, mm-hmm. or even at the end of the movie when Mar Marlo is captured, right, and he's tied up, he still has someone light up a, a cigarette, put it in his mouth, and take it out when he has to talk, and I was just <laughs> like, that's at the time they weren't trying to do anything, but now. If we're recreating a noir, that's something that I think we would have to pay attention to and try and replicate. Interesting. The second thing is the use of shadows. As we said, while this film does not go to the extent that most noir films does, there's some really cool, you know, use of playing with diegetic lighting and and having the actors' shadows in the set as a as a you know part of the scene. Sure. And there's also you know. Uh, there is one of those tip, stereotypical noir blind shots when Marlo visits Bernie in his office. You know, oh, the light yeah. shines through and the blind, the shadow of the blinds is right across Marlo's chest. They do something similar when he's looking around Geiger's house for clues. Geiger has like one of those like weird like 70s beaded doorway things. Mm-hmm. And the light coming through the doorway uh, kind of casts these weird shadows around the room that are... are um, 
you know, playing on Marlowe and everything else in the room as he's collecting clues. So they do use the shadows. It's just crazy to think that there's no arm fills that go to such an even greater extent. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess when we say a greater extent, what we mean is like it'll literally drape the entire frame in, you know, blinds or yeah. like a fan moving or, you know, literally like the silhouettes are the black. entire scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like they're not just like, hey, the lighting's coming from behind, but we can still see him. It's like, no, some of the film noirs, it's like you can't even all you see is the silhouette. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the number one for me was the fedora. Yeah, the, detect- the whole detective pit. outfit. Yeah, right. And and when he takes off his fedora, he's making a statement, right? Either stuff is getting rough and he's in a fight or he's trying to be respectful to someone. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that fedora is an extension of his character, right? He even uses it as his, his disguise in the scene when he goes undercover, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, like flips up the bill. Yeah. And no, like puts and, on glasses. Yes, exactly. Um, and I just, those are the three that stand out to me when I watch the movie. Perfect. I like all those three and th- my three, they're not complicated. Um, and they're the most kind of like film noir type things. <laughs> and that is. Number three, femme fatale, which is you have in a lot of film noirs, you mentioned it at the top of the podcast, mostly female characters who can't be trusted and oftentimes mm-hmm. prove that to be true. Um, in most film noirs, it does kind of p- play out where it, you know, they can't be trusted. Yeah. Number two is kind of the urban setting of Los Angeles, which ironically, a lot of it takes place, it feels like, outside of downtown, you know, kind mm-hmm. of like they're driving out a little ways or they're at like a, a pier or somewhere, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And do they go to Mexico? I think they talk about going, but I don't. I think they, they go end up driving out to Rialto at the end okay. of Gotcha. I was yeah. like, I didn't know if they, I couldn't tell. You know, yeah. there's there's that confusing element in it, but <laughs> um, it doesn't go I like, away. Yeah, I like the urbanization, the urban setting, the urbanization of L.A. and how they show. You know, he is downtown a lot of times. He gets beat up down there. Um, it has a lot of fog. It's kind of grimy. It's often almost exclusively, you know, at night. I think when he goes to the bookstores during the day, and there's one time where she's out in a car and it's day, but most he of it's at night. Yeah. Yeah. And it does feel, you know, it, like it adds to that that depth and kind of creepiness. You know, I'm sure you could just walk around at night and you're like, oh, shoot, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit different. So and number one is the murder mystery, which, you know, obviously most film noirs start there with detectives and do that whole thing. So, I mean, the story itself is the definition of a film noir. Dude, definitely. So. If you're still listening, obviously, we both really believe that this film is a film noir, and we would love to know your thoughts. So if you watch it, you know, message us and let us know if you're uh, getting the same vibe as us. And for our final list in this episode, we're not actually going to list things, I guess, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. And that's movies that The Big Sleep has inspired. So I wanted to get your opinion. I know for me, I did a little Google research because I the only movie I can point to definitively that I've seen and I'd be like, that is influenced by The Big Sleep was Chinatown. And that's not to say that obviously a lot of other film noirs have been yeah. influenced by The Big Sleep. But Chinatown to me is the one that really, really stands out as like, you know, it takes place in L.A. There's a, really a lot of elements. It's almost like just a different mystery, but like the same package. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I mean, even when you look at like Jake's character, right? He dresses like Marlowe. His office looks like Marlowe's. Mm-hmm. The plot of Chinatown is again convoluted and confusing. At the heart of it, it's this family drama. But throughout the movie, as an audience, our compass is Jake, right? We know yeah. that we can trust Jake. We know that he's smarter and more courageous than we are, and he's going to do the right thing in the same way that we can with Marlowe in The Big Sleep. So you're, I totally agree. Um, it's and, just more of a 1970s take on that 40s detective. Right? It's like an updated version. And Chinatown's great. Um, oh. You know, in some ways, it may even improve on the genre. But that's the one to me that really stood out. And then the other ones that, that I found i actually googled you know movies that found inspiration from uh the big sleep surprisingly the filmmakers the cohen brothers said that the character of marlo was part of the inspiration for the big lebowski <laughs> and i'm not even a hundred percent sure where <laughs> yeah but they cited that as a reference for their inspiration for the film and obviously there's that element of like people tracking people and all this different stuff but I was surprised to read that. And then the most recent movie that I found that claimed to have drawn inspiration, they actually recommended that you see The Big Sleep before you watch this, was Knives Out by Ryan Johnson. Really? Yeah, there was an article I read, and I don't know if it was Ryan Johnson specifically, but uh, whoever was quoted in the article had recommend going and seeing The Big Sleep. Dude, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. I mean, I guess you can kind of see some of the same similarities, especially with Daniel Craig's character. Yeah. But I think it's cool that they were like, no, you should see this to get a better understanding of what we're trying to do here in this movie. So I thought that was interesting. But I, I, I don't know. What do you think? What movies would you, you know, claim as inspired by The Big Sleep? Um, I think L.A. Confidential in 97 is in a lot of ways. Again, I feel like the filmmakers were saying this is what like a modern day, a, like quote unquote modern day, 1990s Marlowe would look like. Mm. And I think about the scene with Bud White where he gets out of the car and punches the wife beater. Yeah. When he's parked outside of the house on the stakeout. And I, it's very similar to me to when Marlowe jumps out of the car because he hears the gunshot and he ends up jumping through that window and like, I just watch it and I'm like, yeah, I can definitely see this. And if I was to, in a lot of way, Bud White reminds me of the character of Marlowe without the qualities of a 1940s gentleman. He's a little bit more hard edged, I guess you'd say. And mm-hmm. he doesn't quite have the same, you know, detective dialogue and that sarcasm. Because that's really yeah. where Marlowe shines is like, you know, he's got that quick wit, that sarcasm. And then he's he's just constantly like to the point, like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. Another movie that I think is definitely influenced by and I can't remember. I think I think I even heard that it was was uh, Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from 2005. Oh, yeah. Is that, wait, is that with Robert Downey Jr.? Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. If you haven't seen yeah, it, okay, straight, okay. kind of flew under the radar. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is is amazing in it. He has great chemistry with Kilmer. Michelle Monograms in it. And. Uh, again, it's influenced even to the point that the separate like segments of the film, Shane Black named after titles of Raymond Chandler novels. Like there is a segment called The Big Sleep. Oh, you know? okay. um, so I just think it's kind of cool. And again, 
right? It's a 2000. It's supposed to be taking modern day in, you know, 2005 L.A. In a lot of ways, the 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 Marlowe character is split between these two, the actual private investigator who is Perry, played by um, Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Uh, Same thing. It's a story involving kind of two sisters and there's these two separate storylines that end up converging at the end of the film. It's a cool look, a modern take on the noir, the, you know, neo, neo noir. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the last one is uh, Sin City. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Rodriguez even told actors when he was trying to recruit him to the movie, he's like, hey, do you guys want to do a film noir? Everything we love about noirs is in Sin City, you know, and especially the fact that everything was shot digitally. Um, Rodriguez was able to get a level of, of play with shadows and get true black on film, which no one actually shooting a film noir was able to do. And I, I don't know for a fact, but I would suspect that he probably watched, uh, you know, the big sleep before shooting Sin City. And I would think that Frank Miller was definitely influenced, uh, by it when he wrote the comics that, sure, you sure. know, Sin- well, awesome. Yeah. Those are all, you know, great movies, a couple of surprises in there. But obviously, this movie still influences, you know, some of those movies are pretty recent. Knives Out was last year, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it still influences filmmakers to this day. And some of our favorite movies, classics, uh, draw inspiration from it. So if you haven't seen The Big Sleep, I'd recommend going and checking it out. It's a great movie and it's a lot of fun. One of the things I wanted to talk before we go ahead and, you know, kind of end the episode here is you and I have actually filmed some film noirs together, not together. Uh, <laughs> you starred in it. I we, I wrote a short film when we were in college called The Knockover. Christian played Jack Merrifield, private detective. <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of borrows from all of these, which is ironic because I, I had mentioned at the top of the podcast that I had not seen The Big Sleep. Although if you were to watch The Knockover <laughs> right after watching The Big you Sleep, you'd be totally like, it was, you did. yeah, it was totally inspired by that. So it was kind of funny that, you know, we've actually incorporated a lot of elements from this genre into our own work. Yeah. And I wanted to see if you would talk a little bit about the short film that you had done called Through the Smokescreen. Well, when we shot the pilot, we obviously we did our research with noirs. I've always liked the noir genre Um, and I've always liked this movie. So it was definitely an influence for me to the point that I tried to borrow some lines a little bit. I uh, our main character, Dick Regan, was very much a takeoff of Marlowe in terms of the way that he dressed, the way that he talked and the way that he looked. And I had him smoking the entire movie. (laughs) Didn't I mean. I have to ask, was the name Dick Regan borrowed from Sean Regan from this movie? It was definitely inspired by it. I mean, as I said, I'm a big fan of it. Um, even to the point that when you watch the the opening credits to the pilot, <laughs> we did it as a nod to the opening sequence of A Big Sleep with silhouetted people and smoke and all that stuff. So, awesome. you know. Obviously, yeah. as, a, as an artist and a, and a storyteller, it's definitely something that influenced me. And I just love the genre to begin with. So, yeah, I've, I've incorporated, you know, into some of my own work with uh, Synthetic, a movie that uh, Sean Gasson and I filmed back in the Midwest when we were younger, back in high school. 
And even though that has kind of like the uh, sci-fi noir take on it, a lot of the elements are there. I think I played the detective and I have like, you know, the long coat, the duster and the short tie and (laughs) all all those elements are like totally in play. And it's weird because, you know, you have this like hard boiled detective story with this like, you know, robot backstory, which was fun to shoot. But, you know, I've always found inspiration from these kind of detective stories, film noirs. I love the style, love the genre. And yeah, you can see that kind of, you know, even subconsciously, because like I said, if you had asked me at the time, was it this movie or that movie? I'm like, no, I don't know. It's just always kind of been there. (laughs) And I like that. And we've had a good time filming it. I mean, remember we shot uh, the knockover downtown. We took a like a cart. We did a nice dolly shot, like got that, you know, urbanization setting. It was awesome. Yeah, no, it was fun. We shot it here. I mean, here. I mean and how can they how can they not be fun? You know, it's it's all like the cool things about cinema that we love. You know, these characters who are unreal, but we wish that they were real. Yeah, we had Jack Merrifield at a bar. He, <laughs> Yeah, there was a nice, it was almost a Mexican standoff at the end, but there was a little shootout. It was pretty cool. No, definitely. And actually, that reminds me of something I wanted to bring up. Another thing I love about The Big Sleep is Marlo's a scrapper, but there are times where he gets bested and he gets beat up and he has to talk his way out of situations or think his way out of situations. And he's not this totally infallible, you know, hero, even though he's the smartest and, and, um, the cleverest person in the film, he still gets tested in, in different ways by other characters in the film. Absolutely. Well, that really, that does it for, you know, Total Rewind this week, The Big Sleep. Now, as we have done on all the previous episodes, I do want to throw it over to you. Is this a movie that you think should be shown or taught about in film class? Ooh, or film I put this on the list. Um, I definitely would. I think the fact that the Humphrey Bogart and the Lauren Bacall relationship in itself and their chemistry makes it be of value to film fans for no other reason than that. But as I said, we can see ways that this has influenced so many movies down the line. And I do think that Howard Hawk is a incredibly underrated director. I once read where someone said that he is the most famous director that no one knows his name. Um, and I think that they're right. And it's, you know, there's some some good things to learn. And even the fact that, uh, as he said, you know, it's a movie about characterization. It's a movie about the investigative process of being a detective, not necessarily uh, what the case is. And I, I think it's there's a lot to be learned from it. What do you think? Well, it's weird because if I was, you know, teaching a class or I was in a class that's specifically about the genre of film noir yes i think i would put the big sleep in the syllabus but if we're just talking about film noir being taught at film school maybe in a general sense um i don't know that i would and okay. the reason is there's so many film noirs i think i would go with the maltese falcon maybe double indemnity mm-hmm. and you know so, like if you wanted to go neo-noir a little bit more uh, updated like i said earlier chinatown there's Taxi Driver, L.A. Confidential. Um, and I think, you know, I would even like, would you I'm trying to think, would you count Reservoir Dogs as a film noir? I mean, I don't know, I don't know that, that I would. Would. 
But I mean, but I mean apparently, I probably, Big Lebowski is a film noir to some extent. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it might borrow some elements, but I doubt I would consider it a film noir. But even those movies I listed, like those would probably be the ones that would make my syllabus, you know, mm-hmm. and then even going as far as picking some sci-fi noirs like Blade Runner or Minority sure. Report or even The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might make it in there, but it would be like my somewhere if I were going to show like classic era film noirs it would be like number three three or four but if i was teaching a class in general and trying to go through you know all the different takes you still have you know international and all this different stuff maybe i don't know if i i don't think it would make it okay okay interesting so because you know me i'm a huge fan of chinatown like that would make my list i think the maltese falcon might be you know just like the perfect example of another film with humphrey bogart yeah, right. I mean, you still get Humphrey Bogart in there, and then you have like L.A. Confidential and maybe Blade Runner or something like that, so you could mix them all up. I, that's probably what I would go with for the syllabus and on okay. Noirs. Okay. So that's my take. Even though it's weird because the big sleep after watching it is, you know, like we said, it's it's very classic noir. It checks almost all the boxes. It was a fun movie, and I really enjoyed it. I just think if it was, you know, the sil- if I'm making the syllabus, uh, there's a couple other movies in there that I just really love. No, I mean, that's understandable. So, well, that does it for Total Rewind this week. Christian, thank you. That was a, that was a really fun episode. It was a little bit different. And um, I hope our listeners are at least inspired to go check out a movie from 1946. That would be amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Give it a watch. So if you guys want to continue the conversation, leave us feedback or give us any comments or anything, you can follow the show at Film Comp Podcast and then YouTube and Facebook. You can find us at Filmmakers Compass Podcast. You can follow me at Pit Big Kid D-Man and Christian. And you can follow me at NDCal5. So we'd like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to the episode. We will be back and we hope you enjoyed the show.